0: Hey everybody, welcome to the SCI Curecast number two. This is our second podcast and uh, I, we don't really have a title for it today. So we've had conversation about what we're going to talk about. And, and the first thing I want to mention, um, thanks for coming back, by the way. And, uh, and actually, let me just tell you quick, because um, it's important um, we do now have an email address where you can contact us directly. And it is Curecast, C-U-R-E-C-A-S-T, at U2FP, the letter U, the number two, F is in Frank, P is in Peter, dot O-R-G. And we would love to hear from you um, and get your comments, get your feedback, thoughts, um, concerns, criticisms, whatever you got for us, we would love to hear it and we will um, comment at, at our next podcast, and hopefully as we go along, we'll start tailoring things to, uh, to the podcast as we go. I wanna just tell you a quick sort of personal story as it relates to what we're gonna talk about today. Um, my son was injured back in 2008. He was in Costa Rica. Um, he uh, kind of Im- imploded his fifth vertebrae in the cervical area of the, of the neck and became quadriplegic while body surfing. Um, he was far from home, and, you know, obviously that's a whole bunch of challenges. But when he got back to Minneapolis, where I live, he was at the University of Minnesota Hospital. And the first few days um, that he was there, I had gone home to get some stuff in my, in my car. You know, we pretty much slept at the hospital for the next several months, um, And I always like to go up to the top of the parking ramp at the University of Minnesota Hospital I'm coming back from my house. And so I could see the city and the Mississippi River. It's kind of a nice view. And I always take a few minutes to kind of just pause and and think about where you are in that moment. And obviously, that was not a a pleasant moment to be in. But while I was getting some of my stuff out of the car, I, I noticed a box in the back of my Volkswagen Eurovan. Um, and in the back of that box was my son's soccer gear. Um, he played soccer. He was a, he was a really good soccer player. Actually, he was a sweeper, good sweeper with a big foot. And in that box were his cleats and his shin guards and some nasty smelling socks probably. Um, and I remember just looking at that box, picked up his cleats and it's kind of a tough moment for me, uh, emotional moment, obviously thinking, well, you know, he's paralyzed and he can't play soccer. Um, And I think back to that moment a lot because we mentioned something in a lot last podcast. It was kind of an off, uh, sort of an off remark about the purple pill and about the notion of a cure. And we wanted to talk a little bit today about that, meaning of cure, about that word cure, because I think back then I was thinking that how am I going to get my boy back into his cleat so he can play soccer again, even though, you know, a quarter of a mile away off that parking ramp, he's lying in a bed paralyzed from the chest down. And since then, and maybe through a lot of difficulty and a lot of rattling and changing, uh, I, I don't really think that way anymore. What I think about more is how can I get or how can I help to get more function? How can I get uh, more movement or more autonomic control in his um, uh, bowel and bladder and sexual function and feeling and uh, indep- things that would translate to independence? I don't think so much anymore about getting back to what he was. I think more forward about how can we get to where he needs to go. And so it's with that that I think we want to start the podcast, and I'm here with Kay Willette, who's the author, as you already know, of Don't Call it a Miracle, a Movement to Cure Spinal Cord Injury, and Marilyn Smith, who's the Executive Director of Unite to Fight Paralysis, who sponsors this podcast. So welcome to you two.
1: Thanks, Matt. Good beginning. Um, this is Kate. Hi everybody.
0: Hi, Kate. Hi, Marilyn.
2: Hey there. This is Marilyn. I'm glad to be back as well. I I was following your story very carefully and just really fascinated by the kind of the thought process that you went through there. I, I it and it recalled to my mind a story of when my son was first injured. He was injured in two thousand two and uh he was driving down the road in a wheel came off a truck going the other direction and crashed on top of his pickup, which is one of the more freakish accidents a person could have. Yeah. But anyway, he was when he was doing his inpatient rehab, he was on the fifth floor of the hospital. And in my my fear and my anger and my frustration at trying to wrap my head around what had happened. I, I got the notion in my head that if I walked up five flights of stairs every time I went to visit him, that by doing that, it would enable him to walk again. So I did that for three months, just believing that somehow or other that was going to have an effect. And... <laughs> I mean, I think I knew better in my head, but it was really, it was born of my desperation of wanting to do something, Yeah. and at that point, I really didn't know what else I could do. I knew what I could do to try and make each day as good for him as possible, whether that was bringing him in a nice meal or just... Staying there to visit and listen, or staying on top of the doctors and nurses, I, I knew what to do about that, but I didn't know what to do about getting him greater recovery by about figuring out how he could walk again. So mm-hmm. at that very early stage, the best I could come up with was walking five up five flights of stairs multiple times a day. And I think it's just <laughs> indicative of the desperation. That we all feel when we're hit by this trauma. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. You know,
1: Bruce and I were talking recently about what a cure might be, what it might look like. And, you know, he's down to very um, specific things. He said, I mean, he has one working hand, right? And it happens to be his left hand. He was right-handed before his injury. Is like, my right hand. <laughs> if I could have movement of the fingers of my right hand it would change my life that one simple thing and you know he has a a short list after that (laughs) he's not expecting to ski the trees again okay at least not standing up (laughs) but but he does on a sit ski do pretty well right now not the trees thank god (laughs) But, but it's a short list for him this, this, this. These are the things that, for me, would be hugely helpful. And I think hugely helpful is a big thing for us to even be talking about. That's, you know, there was no help. There was just nothing for so long. So,
0: well, I, I think all these stories are really important as we, um, you know, we in this podcast going forward. I'm sure we're going to use the word cure a lot. Uh, you know, type paralysis is uh, on there. I think it's is it still the voice of the cure? Yes, it's that's tag our winner, tagline, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So that word is out there a lot. I mean, I use it a lot. Um, and I think it's important for us to understand what that means. Um, and also, I think it's important. So I, I, I imagine that there are some people out there that might be bristling a little bit at the idea of uh, anybody trying to redefine that word cure. I mean, you know, sort of like saying, what do you mean? Are you selling out for something less than a cure? Um, and and I think not. I mean, I, I certainly hold out hope for as much recovery as is possible for my son. It's not like, I'm, it's not like I'll, I don't think I'll be satisfied with, um, you know, getting Bruce's right hand or getting, you uh, you know, maybe one, one level down from where my son's injury is or two levels down. I mean, I think that'll be fantastic, but I I don't think it'll mean like I'm done, you know, or he's done thinking about any more recovery. So I do think the idea of it being progressive is what we all hope for, but I think it's the recognition that it's likely going to be incremental and that is where I think it leads to more of what we wanted to discuss in this podcast is because um, this is a really challenging uh, problem for science to solve Um, and so far has been really difficult. You know, one of the things we were talking about prior to the podcast, something that was really affecting to each of us, the um, uh, Working to Walk Conference, which, again, for, for those of you who don't know, is the International Advocacy and Science Symposium or Science and Advocacy Symposium, whichever you prefer. It happens every year. This year it's going to be October 28th, 29th in the Twin Cities uh, in Minnesota. Um, you can go to U2FP.org and find more information about it or register, if you so choose. We'd love to have you. Um, a few years back it was in... Um, in Los Angeles, and it was at the Reeve Irvine, there was a, a visit to the Reeve Irvine Research Center. Um, and something that was really um, profound, I think for each of us was this, this researcher dude on a table had laid out a human spinal cord and a mouse spinal cord and a rat spinal cord. And what was so compelling about looking at it is that one, was kind of big and long, I don't know, three feet long and I don't know, maybe as big around as my thumb. Help me out somebody, is that about right? <laughs>
1: well it's at the tips it's about as big as the tip of your pinky, okay?
0: Uh, at both so ex- ends.
1: it's so not ex- thick at all.
0: I'm exaggerating and it a little gets bit narrower though.
1: In the in the middle.
0: Yeah, so I mean, but so you picture that on a table, and then you look at the mouse and the rodent, and they're these little t- tiny things, so much smaller. Um, and what it what it illuminated for me was thinking, well, all this research is happening in these mice, these tiny little creatures with these tiny little spinal cords, and you know, I've heard more not more than once that. What works in a mouse is not, there's no guarantee that's going to work in a human being because it's so much more complicated, um, to move up. Um, and that's really, really important as we talk about this notion of cure, um, because it's really complicated and people are having a hard time finding, uh, things that translate from those small animal models into working in human beings. Um, which really, to me, is like crazy problematic. Like, if something doesn't work in a mouse, maybe that doesn't mean it's not going to work in a human, right? I mean, just yes. in the same way that it, it makes sense that if it works in a mouse, it may not work in a human. Like, both is both are applicable, <laughs> and then you think, well, <laughs> like, well, what do you do? You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, it's... And yet, what what else do we have to, in terms of... doing research on animals. Uh,
1: It's also the case that, you know, there are many, many problems have been solved by doing animal research. (laughs) There are things in other uh, areas of medicine where the animal research did lead to people getting better. Like, that's, you know, that's why it's a model in science, because you can't point to successes. So, you know, yeah, the court is special, I guess. (laughs) That's... (laughs) That's the bad news.
0: Yeah. Well, let me, let me, can, can you, can you um, talk about that quote you mentioned earlier from uh, uh, how to survive a plague?
1: Sure. Because
0: that really kind of segues into, you know, so we just talked about this notion of cure and kind of how we are, for, for all intents and purposes in this conversation and the podcasts going forward, how we use that word cure. And as the, and the reason being is we understand how complicated it is um, that we're not gonna we're not talking about a purple pill because there's no there's not likelihood there's not much likelihood of anybody cultivating a purple pill at this point doesn't mean that we, we don't see a future for you know progressive cures um, that are as as regenerative as possible um, but I think it. What Kate's going to read a quote to you that really speaks to how important it is for us as a community to understand um, what this injury is and understand as best as we can the, the science that it is seeking to provide treatments.
1: Okay, so um, a really good friend of mine happened to have been involved in the um, AIDS movement, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, which, you know, there was a group called Act Up, which sort of part of what happened is they split into this little scientific group and the like the public one that we all know about. But the scientific group was the one that I was interested in, and there's a movie about them called How to Survive a Plague, which is available on Netflix, and I hope everybody watches it because it's, it's, yeah. it's just insanely great. Um, and at one point in this movie, um, there's a, an official from the National Institutes of Health, which of course you know, was responsible for providing the money that would do research to figure out how to deal with AIDS, right? And people were dying by the thousands mm. by this time, by the thousands, and these were young people who had been healthy and then were suddenly and quickly gone. So the the community was obviously, you know, pushing very hard to make something change, to make the National Institutes of Health pay attention. So here's the quote. It's from um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was a scientist there, and he said this about the AIDS activists. Quote, they elevated themselves by their own self-education on these things. And then it became very clear that you weren't going to mess with these people because they knew exactly what you were talking about. And they knew exactly what they were talking about. So. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I, like, really was sort of goosed by that, I remember watching that film and hearing that man say those things and going, yeah, that is a problem for us. We don't know enough about what we're talking about. We don't know enough to push these people effectively, which is what the AIDS activists did.
2: Yeah, and I think that's true both in whatever arena you're, you're focused on, whether it's you're pushing science, whether you're pushing funding, whether you're pushing uh, regulation, you're pushing um, the NIH, just all these players who are involved in the game, and we'll get into that later. But I think the important point is you got to know what you're talking about. And it doesn't mean you have to be a neuroscientist, but you've got to have a strong enough fundamental knowledge of the landscape to be respected. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and also not to be duped, right? I mean, we talked about that a little bit last time. I mean, part of that is the savviness, so that we're not um, we're not confused when when yeah, not taken by um, um, hype or excitement over something or, or or by charlatans. You know, And Kate in the book talks about you know people who go overseas and um. You know, get invasive treatments um, that they have no idea what those treatments are, and no idea uh, what the risks are. Uh, and in, like Marilyn in your story, you know, out of the desperation of, you know, that the magical thinking of I'm going to climb five stairs a day, you know, five floor flights of stairs a day, and that's going to change something. Um, right. That that. In a similar way, out of that same desperation, do people spend lots of money? And, I, and I'm, I'm one of those people way back then um, that out of that desperation thinking, well, we have nothing to lose because, you know, look how much has been taken away. Like We've got to do something and there's nothing available here and you could you create all sorts of rationales and reasons for that. But um, there are people who've been hurt people who've been who've lost function um, and, and or people who've just thrown away lots of money um, yeah. because somebody made a promise that they should not be making um, and and trying to profit off other people's desperation so all, so all those things are really important for us I think it's inspiring when you read that to think you know I, I want to be uh, I want somebody to say that about our community
2: me too <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. That's it. So well, and that's you know that's that's what this CureCast is about. That's what our podcast is about. I mean, really, fundamentally, hopefully, wanting to have conversation about this arena, have conversation about spinal cord injury itself, have conversation about the science, the the in in some way or form of the details of the science, and then even the larger picture. Uh, Marilyn used the word players, you know, all the different players in this uh, in this research economy. That's something we want to talk about probably a little bit later on. Um, but today, w- we want to really talk about the spinal cord itself. Um, so kind of back to that uh re-vervine, you know, we're looking at the spinal cord that was, uh, I-, I shudder to think how that was taken out of some body. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I didn't really think of that. (laughs) (laughs) It's an ugly picture. Um, But we wanted to talk about kind of, because this, back to Kate's book, which initially, uh, if you listened to the last podcast, you know, we talked about Kate's book and wanting to kind of touch on certain areas of it and encourage you to read it. By the way, which, uh, sorry to just throw in an infomercial here, but um, again, Kate Willette, her book is Don't Call It a Miracle. It is free to download on Amazon and the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. I believe you can still order hard copies of the book there. Is that right, Kate?
1: Oh, absolutely. In yeah, fact, so you can. You can order, so, if you want to, you can order a case of them. Ooh. It will send them to you for free.
0: This is time for Christmas.
1: You don't even have to pay for shipping. It's like. <laughs> There's yeah, no it's reason. not to The best to deal out work.
2: there, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I should say. And and a lot of folks I know have referred to her, to her book as a as a handbook for anybody who wants to understand more about this, but particularly anybody who wants to advocate on behalf of uh, spinal cord injury and and expediting the research in whatever arena you want to advocate. Um, but in this in this conversation today we wanted to talk really kind of about what the, what the core is made of um, and so Kate I, I guess I want to ask you first um, you wrote the book and you did a lot of research um, what you know I guess fundamentally what did you what did you learn that you didn't know I mean what 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 uh, you wrote what well, I think it's couple of chapters on this, three chapters in one section, um, mm-hmm. on what the cord is made of. What did you what did you find out that you didn't know?
1: You know, um you guys talking about the, the early days after your sons were injured reminded me of a conversation I had with our daughters after my husband was injured and it went something like, um, well, is daddy gonna get better? And the answer was, you know, <laughs> they don't know. It's like there are, there are wires going down from his brain to the rest of his body and those are broken, but maybe not all of them are broken. And it's like, that was pretty much the extent of my understanding of <laughs> spinal cord injury science at that time, right? I didn't know mm. anything when I very first got into this. And then... um Because my background is in teaching and because I've always worked with teenagers, it seemed to me that what I wanted was a book that would be aimed at like middle school, you know, (laughs) because those books tend to be the most clear in terms of um, how things are explained and what is left out and what is put front and center and how the Mm. information gets structured. Like a A ninth grade level science book is a really helpful thing to have, right? But there was no ninth grade level book about spinal cord injury or about the spinal cord. And so in a way, that's what I set out to write because, you know, let's be honest, most of us didn't take advanced biology classes (laughs) and also even if we had like i'm old if i had taken one it would all have been changed by the time you know this happened to us because biology is changing really fast and neurobiology is changing at exponential speed so that was my original thought was let's make something that's as user-friendly and accessible to um ordinary people as possible. Because most of us who are in this boat don't have any reason to know these things. So I started out um, saying, well, like what's a healthy spinal cord? What, how does it work? What's it made of? What are the um, component pieces and how do they interact with each other? And I had enough background to at least know that was the right question to begin with. (laughs) And honestly, I had people who have written about spinal cord injury research in other um, venues say to me, well, you should start with the injury. You should start by saying what goes wrong. And I was like, I can't because I don't know it, how it's supposed to work. <laughs> like I, no. I, I have to start with with what a functioning cord does before I can say, and here are the issues about that. So that was the beginning. And um, the first big aha for me, and don't laugh, but it was like, oh, the brain and the spinal cord are really the same thing. <laughs> they're the central nervous system. I kind of somehow never really knew that, you know?
0: Yeah, they're all that one continuous all connected one thing. thing.
1: Yes, yeah. which is why this was another aha moment. That's why when Bruce was in the hospital, they put him in neurointensive care with all the head injury patients, you know, mm. because it's, you know, it's, it's a, neurology. Yeah. yeah. Right? I hadn't appreciated that um, at all before
2: I got engaged in this process. So well, I, I, I yep. totally get that. I, you know, when my son had his accident, I didn't know what a spinal cord injury was. I had I had no clue. I'd never heard the term before. So yeah, it's amazing. That's kind of where we start from. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's interesting, also. So the the um, you know the physicians that treated our family members are neurosurgeons and neurosurgeons do brain surgery as well as repairing spinal cords and also putting in baclofen pumps. And, you know, like these are the surgeons that do that because their specialty is the brain and spinal cord, CNS. And then also, actually, as you were just talking, it made me think of, well, that's also why you know, for those of you who don't know, there there are a number of states in the United States that have these public uh, funding mechanisms. You know, some, some bill was passed, like we did here in Minnesota, to fund research. Uh, you know, community activists come together and go to their legislature and say, hey, we want to create a fund that helps to expedite some of this cool research that's going on. And most of them, if not all... Um, right now, our spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury research programs—they're funding both because they're the same clinicians, the same scientists, or, or a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be a scientist working exclusively on the brain, but there is a whole bunch of overlap because we're talking about the same cells, yes, the
2: right. same cells. system, right?
0: Yeah. So, so, so what's what are those cells? Tell us what they are.
1: <laughs> well. I break this whole section of the book, what the what the cord is made of. I think there's four chapters because there are three kinds of cells, and then there is the fact that they all work together. Okay, three kinds of cells, and again, the level of my ignorance is sort of shocking to me now. But I all
0: of us, actually. I
1: I just I hadn't really kind of understood that cells are you know they're different from proteins, molecules, whatever, like all these are just sort of quote unquote science words to me. I don't know what any of this is, but what I try to say in the book is cells are like, they're living things. They're like little factories. Okay. And they kind of bunch together in um, groups. So you have in your, in your arm, a whole bunch of muscle cells, right? And Mm -hmm. they're, they come together to form a muscle. And, um, skin cells, right? All the kinds of cells in your body, and there are about 200 different kinds. They each have their little job to do, and they, um, they have evolved to be really efficient at doing that job. So in the spinal cord and brain, in the central nervous system, there are three basic kinds of cells. And I go into uh, some detail with a lot of very elaborate and beautiful drawings that show exactly what these are, what they look like, and what their jobs are, and what their jobs are together. So, first one would be neurons, of course. Neurons being the kind of basic unit of the central nervous system, they're these little, um, very tiny cells, and they are in the brain, and they're all through the spinal cord, and there are, um, I think, three kinds is what we talk about in the book. There's the you know, the one that has the cell body up in your brain and the axons that go down into the cord. And then there's some in the cord that have cell bodies there and the axons that go out to your muscles. And then there's a third kind called interneurons that exist just inside the cord and they act as communication, like relay switch cells.
0: Yeah. So, I, so, so. Just one little cool thing I, I, that I like how you described. I don't know if you ripped it off from somebody or if it was your own idea of, Man. you know, the... Ones, <laughs> so, hey, hey, so who was it? Uh, Stravinsky, Igor Stravinsky said, right? He said, uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So it's, it wasn't disparaging comment, even if you ripped it <laughs> off. Um, so the neurons have... Uh, you know, the cell body, so you picture this, you know, just think, picture a little round cell body, and then they have this one long axon that goes out, and you describe that as a tongue, um, yes. and like the mouth. It's the thing that speaks. And then around the cell body are these other, like, sort of tree limb-like things that are dendrites, and they're the ears. And I really like that image of, you know, kind of helped me understand... Uh, Because it's this talking, listening. That's how, you know, the the electrical synapses, the messages that go out super fast um, are going in both directions. You know, one is talking and one is listening. I just kind of thought that was a cool image. Whether it was yours or you ripped it off from somebody.
1: (laughs) No, it was mine. (laughs) Usually, usually, there there are a lot of analogies in this book that, um... mm, Actual scientists sort of smiled over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of really?
2: Them,
1: right? Yeah. Okay, I don't know, but I have had scientists tell me that they assign this text to some of their students who are not trained in nice. this. World nice, nice. So um, accessible. It's so simple to understand. This is where we start. And of course, then they go on and do all sorts of things that I still do not understand. Right, but this right. is the basic idea. There's a cell body. It transfers information to another cell and then things happen. So yeah. that's neurons. Um, and then uh, there's two more kinds. One has the, the mouthful <laughs> name, which is oligodendrocyte. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And those cells are are made, people talk about them as their insulation, because the, that long axon that's coming um, in the brain neuron situation, that's coming down into the body, is moving an electrical impulse down, 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 down into the body, um, and that impulse uh, travels fastest when that axon is wrapped by some sort of uh, insulating material, and that is the analogy people usually use is um, that it's like insulation around an electrical wire, which isn't really true. (laughs) But the oligodendrocytes um, come into play in that because they have, they're these crazy looking cells with like little arms coming off of them, and what the arms do is find axons that are nearby and wrap them up in this stuff.
0: So wait, so wait, I want to go back a second. So you said, I've heard that analogy so many times of yeah. the insulation around a wire, right? Mm-hmm. That um, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard it. Did you say that that's not true or that's not accurate? Well, Or is this an example of just where, you know, we t- give try to give simple analogies to understand something that's more complicated? I think both,
1: okay, because what I didn't get until I had to do the research and understand this and write it was that the the, the insulation doesn't exist as like a continuous coating. That was a, that's what the insulation. Oh, um, I see. Metaphor sort of means to me that it's just like when I you know cut through a wire, you can look at it. There's the copper inside, and then there's the plastic yeah. or whatever is around it. That is not how the cord works. Like there's an axon, and then the oligodendrocytes, the second kind of cell, they're wrapping up um, those axons, but they're not wrapping them continuously. They're well, like oh, right, these okay. little blobs right. of, of of myelin is the what the stuff is called.
0: Right, it's like the the the. So anybody who's just watched the Olympics. If you looked at the <laughs> swimming races, right. The lines that are separating the pools, they have these floaters. Like I don't even know. I maybe this isn't accurate to this last Olympics, but I think of like when I was on the swim team, there were these floaters along the line, but there were yes. spaces in between them, and that's the the nodes of Ren Ranvier. Ranvier,
1: yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, Ranvier. So there's so, gaps in between right. that insulation, so it's not like an electric wire. Yeah. So now I get it. I hope you guys get it as well <laughs> out there listening. <laughs>
2: Just picture, so picture st- those little lane markers in the pool.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. They're like little floaties that have gaps in between. You know, so it's a rope that has these like styrofoam oblong shaped floaties, but there's gaps in between each of them. And that's where this, the the oligonendrocytes and have gaps between their wrapping.
1: Right. And those And, the
0: and that reason
1: matters... <laughs> The reason this matters sorry Matt is that no, no. the the impulse that goes down the electrical signal that is going down is sort of hopping from right. gap to gap. Right. Okay. So what those little um, those little float things those myelin floats do is make it possible for the the um, electrical impulse to just speed along cuz it's just hopping instead of traveling down that axon. Right. So on these when these the axon chemical
0: these right. chemical reactions that turn into electrical impulses. Right. Or, or Yeah.
1: So when people say, you that know, you need more myelin, what they're saying is we need some cell in there that knows how to make myelin. Okay. Right. And that's why, I mean, that's sort of back to what are we talking about? You know, how are we going to make this work if there are right. surviving axons in your body? Right.
0: So So... So let's use that to jump to the real world for a second. Um, there are and probably more than one, but there's, right off the top of my head, I think of there are strategies that are focused on this very thing that we're talking about, yes. right? So um, the Geron trial, the one of the first stem cell trials for spinal cord, or the, the first, right, I think.
1: These embryonic one that came stem cells. from embryonic stem cells,
0: yes. Yeah, they came from embryonic stem cells. They were making oligodendrocyte precursor cells. Yeah. which are the cells that are sort of lying in wait that that when they're needed to come wrap themselves around axons. Yeah, in and I want people cord. to
1: like understand this that um, making like taking an embryonic stem cell and turning it into anything at all is ridiculously complex thing and i do spend a fair amount of time trying to talk about how exactly that works but because we're here and this was exactly my thinking well. in the book i i included the information some you know information about the gerund trials right here in this very first section even though i'm you know going to talk about that in more detail later but right here because i want people to see here is a problem here was a uh, A serious effort to fix it, right? You know, like they spend years. Yeah,
0: so I know here in Minnesota, there's a doctor that's that's using oligodendrocyte precursor cells. She's she's making them from skin cells, not embryonic, but induced pluripotent stem cells. So you take skin cells and you reprogram them into becoming like an embryonic stem cell. And then coaxing them to become oligodendrocyte precursor cells. Right. Um, and the theory is that you're going to transplant them into the damaged area of the cord. And they're going to you know, know that they need to wrap the axons that are still remaining in the damaged spinal cord. Um, yeah. And sort of then be able to innervate or like wake up these, these axons so that we can have more signals going. Exactly. Right. So there's that strategy, but then there's this
1: other, go ahead. I need to like say something here. I'm listening to you say these things and all of these words are falling out of my mouth too, because I've been thinking about them and talking about them now for the last few years. But, um, to people who are listening to this, This is all explained very, very slowly and clearly. (laughs) It's okay. If it sounds like we're talking gibberish, it it would have sounded like gibberish to me before I wrote this. And hopefully, you know, once you have a chance to look at it, you'll feel like, wow, I really get what they just said. And it makes sense to me.
0: So, yeah, yeah, obvious point. So the point Kate's making is that, you know, this stuff is in the book and that's why we want you to read the book. But at the same time, You know, we don't, uh, well, I'm not trying to explain everything that's in the book. It's just really more like this part of the conversation, expl- you know, understanding a little bit about the cells. I'm pretty sure that a lot of you have heard, at least on a, in a cursory way, some of these strategies like to to fix the spinal cord. And you've heard about maybe the Jaron trial and maybe, you know, the other one that I'm thinking of is the Schwann cell trial at the Miami Project to cure paralysis. Like... Yeah not to get again too complicated because this is also explained in the book, but really just want to kind of tease you guys with some of this stuff because it's in the book and it is explained. And, you know, some of you like me might've had to read it more than once. I actually read Kate's book two and a half times really, I guess. Um, and I'll probably refer to it some more. Um, but so this, you know, this idea that uh, where the cord has been damaged, um, in particular, most people, there's stuff that's still there. There's stuff that's still connected, but it's just not working correctly or not functioning properly because it doesn't have all the the it's not as intact as it once was. And so these strategies that that like when Kate's describing what an oligodendrocyte is and how it wraps these exons, which are the tongues of the neuron that are speaking, you know, sending a message from the brain down to the toe. Um, need to be wrapped up again so they can carry the signal that jumps along the floaties along the the the, <laughs> the, the axon. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was
2: good. Okay. Yeah. So I, I have no, to jump I, in here and, and say something because uh, <laughs> I've been to ten please, please do ten working to walk symposiums, right? And I've heard scientists talk about oligodendrocytes, about Schwann cells, um, about astrocytes, about lower motor neurons, all these different neurological pieces and and concepts. And it never really all came together in my mind until I read Kate's book. I mean, honestly, Mm. it just didn't make a lot of sense. They were all kind of separate ideas, and in their highly technical scientific language, they would explain their strategy for fixing a problem. But it wasn't till I read those first few chapters of this book that I actually could see all these pieces of the puzzle, kind of how they fit together, and And why and how a scientist would choose to tackle a particular piece of this problem and try to solve it. So thank you, Kate. (laughs) I spent all these hours listening to these speakers, watching their videos, and just still felt fairly lost until I read your book.
1: Thanks. I think we should probably get to the third cell type because I don't want us to run out of time before we sort okay, of. Okay, lay okay, hurry up hurry up. hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. So we have neurons, okay. Who are the yep. speakers and listeners? Neurons, super important, without which nothing ever happens. We have oligodendrocytes, which are the cells that make those axons a lot more productive, faster, okay. Um, And then there's a third kind called astrocytes, which uh, I call them management and maintenance team, I think, in this chapter, Mm -hmm. because these are the cells that um, exist nearby and they provide sort of structure and also um, food, nutrients, nutrients to right. the cells that are doing the actual work, which is the neurons. So, And astrocytes turn out to be super interesting and super important. And of course there are varieties of them, but just to know that's it. In order to understand the spinal cord, those three things, neurons, oligodendrocytes, astrocytes. And yeah. you can read about them. You can see little drawings of them. You can he- like catch metaphors about what each one does and doesn't <laughs> do and you know, all of that. But that's, yeah. that's really all you need to know. That is the cord,
0: <laughs> those yeah, three and, cells. And by the way, for those of you like when when Kate earlier was talking about a textbook and you know, this book is is very much like a textbook. And for some of you that might be a turn off, but um, but I would I would encourage you to check it out nonetheless, even though you might be intimidated by a textbook. I think the illustrations are fantastic. Oh, yeah, I was um, just going to say that. The, in, the
2: illustrations and, and the chapters are short, people. And yeah, the, the yeah. language is very friendly.
0: Yeah. Well, So I, was I, a... and, 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 Yeah, and I think those things will really help to unpack what this stuff is. You know, it's funny. I, um, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about I hope I don't know if this will make sense or not, but... For any of you who've ever been to a museum, like a um, art museum, and you go into like the modern art area, and you're standing there looking at some huge canvas, and you're like, "What is that? Like, why is that art?" You know, maybe you're looking at some huge canvas that's like black on one half and white on the other half, and you're like, "What? Come on." Like, what is it? Why is this art? <laughs> uh, have you ever felt that when you've yes. gone into it? Oh, yeah. okay. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking most people have, right? And most people are like, this is a bunch of pretentious crap. Like, what what is this? But now, some of it might be. Like, some of it might just be bad art, right? I mean, just because it's in a museum doesn't necessarily make it. Well, I don't know. Maybe it does if you're a curator of a museum. But the thing that's important is, like, you have to understand the the long conversation that's been going on and like why certain branches of art have um, have meaning or or reference something else or say you know certain artists look back and they're like god we've we've so overdone portraits like we've done enough of portraits so now we're going to do something else with a portrait and kind of change it and react to what's going on in the world and society and wars and politics. And, and in a way, it seems to me like this conversation is similar to that in that, you know, the, the cord is this abstraction. It's like this abstract art that we can't get our head around. But it's because we all, so many of us, don't know the history. Like, we don't know what it's made of and we don't know how it's been understood in the past how scientists have changed the way they think about the cord. Right. Um, which which Kate does talk a little bit about in the book. You know, they used to think it was this thing and now they think it's this thing and now they've proved that it's not that thing, it's this other thing. And that's all that is so important to understand where we are today in the same way that, you know, we may be able to have a better understanding of some forms of art if we know a little bit about the history of art. So um, I,
1: my way of thinking about that, Matt, and I think we're going to stop now, and I will just say, next time we can talk about how all these things work together. Okay, but just to go to what Matt said and to bring this back to working to walk, which is of course, you know, how I first started trying to understand this stuff, I had this image one time at a working to walk where I'm listening to the scientist talking to another one. They were it was a question and answer time, and scientist A was asking scientist B about da 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 da, da and I was sitting there thinking, for them, it's like they have this entire, like a wall mural of information. They have so much context about what they're right. discussing. They know how it all fits together in a way that I just don't. All I have is the little tiny piece of that wall mural that one of them just presented about. And that, um, Again, was, it is for me to get this going, to try to build out that canvas in a way that we can stand back and look at it ourselves. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying.
0: Well, okay. So I think we'll end the conversation there because we're pushing on the envelope already. Um, so again... Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. Please, please um, email us at curecast at u2fp.org, C-U-R-E-C-A-S-T, at the letter U, the number two, F is in Frank, P is in Peter.org. We'd love to hear from you. Love to get your feedback and comments, and hopefully we can inject some of that into the conversation. Um, going forward in the future, we also... Um, at some point down the road, hope to have some guests uh, in the conversation, some scientists, some advocates, um, particularly like Kate just mentioned, those scientists that have such great contacts. We'd love to be able to have them in the conversation um, where we talk about floaties and, and, <laughs> and thing, thingies and tongues and, you know, and, and let them smile. Over the podcast, but we they can give us some context that that um, that we may not be able to provide. So thanks for joining us. Um, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Marilyn. And we'll catch you next time. Next
2: time. Thanks, yeah. Matt. See you.
0: Bye. Bye.